when we begin. There is not a handout this morning. Um, <clears throat> we don't need to have a conversation about this right now, but <clears throat> um, what I'm going to be doing, at, at least for the next foreseeable future, is going to be more heavily oriented toward history than it is theology. So I didn't know if it would be, you know, if you wanted to hand out, if it would still be helpful to you to kind of follow along. And But so you can just kind of, if you have a thought or an opinion, if you want to let me know afterwards, I'm happy to do it. I just didn't. We will turn our attention briefly to Deuteronomy 22. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll, we shall begin this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing upon us that we would have wisdom and grace in understanding your word and in understanding briefly the history of your word interacting with your people, that we would be charitable towards each other, that we would have understanding about our differences and our similarities. And above all, we pray that we would live lives that are honoring to you in all that we do. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this morning, and I really didn't deliberately try and orient it around the beginning of the year, but this morning, I want to deal with kind of a new perspective on what we had been discussing. I guess that's how I'm thinking about it. I had been asked about doing some stuff on denominations, and I didn't want to just walk through the denominations. I've talked about that. First of all, there are so many. And then with every, within every denomination, which is really kind of what's driving what we're going to start doing this morning, and within every denomination, there are all kinds of branches under a denominational title. There are all kinds of Baptists, and there are all kinds of Methodists, and there are all kinds of Presbyterians. Um, there are, and we'll maybe touch on this a little bit <clears throat> over the next couple of weeks, there at least used to be three major divisions within the Church of England. And you would identify yourself not only by Church of England, but by which of the three branches you were involved in. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and those kind of subsets within denominations, they're always, and this is part of what we're doing, folks, somebody is always going to tie it to some Bible verse. It's always going to get tied to a Bible verse. It's, it's always going to be addressed in the context of a Bible verse, but it is almost never ever, ever, ever going to be simply about a Bible verse. It is going to be about a whole host of other things. And so, so then as people interact with issues and bring Bible verses to bear on issues and then come to their positions, very often those positions differ. And so then we have these various, however you want to think of them, <clears throat> factions or subsets, you know, what kind of Baptist are you? Well, I'm this kind, but not this kind, <clears throat> because although I'm a Baptist in general, this kind of Baptist does it right, and this kind of Baptist does it wrong. And, and we could just go on and on and on and on, and this is kind of the characteristic of humanity. And the, <clears throat> the idea, folks, when, when, 
when we say, when, when we, 2024, people like Westwood Heights Baptist Church, when we go, well, this is what I do because this is what the Bible says. Um, we are most likely not paying attention to the fact that we think the Bible says that because of a whole host of other things that have come to bear on our lives. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in any way maliciously or critically. I'm just saying that we do not approach the Bible purely because we cannot. Um, <clears throat> I am always going to view the Bible through the eyes of a white, male, mid-20th century American. That is what I am. And I'm not a Roman, and I'm not a European, and I'm not a Presbyterian. I, I am a Baptist, and I view the world through that lens. And, and so I just want to begin with kind of an illustration of that, of what I'm getting at. And, and so I want to go back into my earliest days in Christianity. Of course, I grew up with absolutely no religious background or instruction whatsoever, although um, in the years in which I went to public school, religion was not hated, and it was not uncommon to be asked what religion we were in, in kind of a formal setting. You know, they, they would take some kind of a survey, and my parents always told me to write down that we were Baptist. I, in retrospection, I don't know why we wrote that down, because we never went to church, and nothing that the Bible ever said had one bearing, to my knowledge, on anything ever that we did in my entire life. Um, so when I got saved at the age of 20, <clears throat> we got saved through <clears throat> the ministry of a Baptist church. And when the Lord dealt with me about ministry, they recommended a similar mentality college for me to go to. And I went to a college uh, in conjunction with that. And one of the very critical components of that particular stripe of Baptist fundamental Christianity was that women did not wear pants, ever, ever. And there are two verses primarily used in logic for that, or reasoning for that, and Deuteronomy 22 is the one that I want to call your attention to this morning. Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 5. <clears throat> the other passage, which we're not going to look at, because it is not my intention this morning to talk to you about women in pants is my intention to talk to you about the fact that we're all interacting with cultural influences that come to bear on how we think about the practice of our Christianity. So the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to the man, unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 22.5 Therefore, women may not wear pants. 1 Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Pants are not modest. Therefore, women should not wear pants. That is the logic. That is the argument. The fact that Deuteronomy 22.5 is talking about the law and we're not under the law was never considered. The fact that Moses was not wearing pants when he wrote that was never considered. The fact that David never wore a pair of pants was not considered. The fact that Jesus never wore a pair of pants was not considered. In other words, 
Nothing in the text of Deuteronomy 22.5 that labeled pants as masculine and not feminine is ever addressed in the text of the scripture. It's not there. It's just not there. It is talking about something, and I'm not saying that it isn't talking about something. I'm saying that what it is talking about is not really defined. There is a distinct and remote possibility that Paul at some point in time in war pants, and here's why I would say that, but I wouldn't argue about it. We know that generally speaking in the Roman Empire, <clears throat> men did not wear pants. Roman men wore togas. Part of coming of age was getting your very first masculine toga. And so they wore togas. That was, that was what they wore. And we know from history, for instance, that Caesar Augustus never wore pants. That in days like this, when it was cold in the Roman Empire, he wore heavy leggings, but he never wore pants. And, but we do know that people in the region of, men in the region of Galatia did wear pants. And because they wore pants, they were considered rather primitive and barbaric. I don't know. I wouldn't say that he did. I'm just saying that knowing what I know about Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's within the realm of possibility that Paul put on a pair of pants when he went into the region of Galatia so that he didn't stand out if, in fact, he would have stood out wearing his robes. My point is just simply this, folks. Right? That is a position some of you have, have perhaps never been exposed to that, but I grew up in it. That was the fundamentalism in which I grew up. Our home church taught it. We very quickly practiced it and embraced it. We went to a college that taught it. Women do not wear pants. And over the course of time, that doesn't simply become an application of something that Moses said. It becomes a doctrine in its own right. And again, if you did come out of that background, you know that I'm not exaggerating to say that very often I found myself in the early days of my Christianity making an entire judgment about a person based upon that singular fact, whether or not they treated Deuteronomy 22.5 right. Now, let me just add a dimension to that because, again, my point is not to talk to you about what Deuteronomy 22.5 means, The same institution that so adamantly argued <clears throat> that pants were masculine and therefore it was an abomination for a woman to wear them was equally against facial hair on men. And one of the first things, and <clears throat> I say this only partially joking, one of the more traumatic parts of leaving the secular world and going off to Bible college was the fact that I had to shave off my mustache to go. If we are obsessed about a physical, external identifier of gender, is there anything that screams more loudly, I am a boy, than having a beard? Is there anything more normal among Bible masculinity than having a beard? In fact, we'll get to this in the not-too-distant future in First Chronicles, which recounts the time that the Ammonites humiliated some of David's ambassadors by cutting their robes very short and by shaving off half of their beards. 
To which David, to me, interestingly enough, said, not, well, just shave your whole face, but stay away from the capital city. And he didn't mean that he was trying to help them, not be critical of them, but stay out of the capital city until your beards grow back. Now, if the Bible is so expectant of facial hair on men, why is facial hair on men in the modern fundamentalist world such an issue? And the answer to that, folks, is culture. For much of American history, men wore facial hair. It was just some, most did. Most men had some kind of facial hair, they just did. And in World War I, we went to war, and we went to war in a war that used chemical weapons, and you couldn't have facial hair and wear a gas mask. And so the military <clears throat> compelled men to shave their faces. And that kind of stuck. <clears throat> and of course, we went to World War II completely clean-shaven as a culture. And we pretty much stayed completely clean-shaven as a culture. And then guess who began to wear beards? the freaks and the hippies and the rebels. And guess what fundamentalism did? They found fault with beards. Not because you couldn't find a beard in the Bible, but because the people who were wearing beards were not the kind of people we wanted to be identified with. Again, this is not an endorsement of beards. This is not some subliminal message that all of you men should grow one. This is just an observation, folks, that none of us come to the Bible and go, I am a blank slate, and I just want to know what the Scripture says, and I'm going to do what the Scripture says. Because none of us have ever been blank slates. We have grown up with certain influences, and Christianity, by very nature, has to interact with the world around it. Who's doing what and why are they doing it? How are they defining it? What does the Bible say? And so this is just one illustration that I thought of that came across my mind as I thought, right, to just talk about denominations is good and somewhat helpful and to talk about the major denominational differences is good and helpful. But what are some of the other things that have shaped us and influenced us? And so in order to talk about that, folks, I just find if I'm going to do this, and maybe I'll pull the plug on it very quickly, we just have to do a little bit of history. And as much as I can, I'm going to try and make it biblical history, but we have to do <clears throat> a little bit of history. And I'm going to try and confine it to America Although this morning we're going to begin talking about America by talking about Europe because that's where we came from. But there have been a variety of major influences, what we would call revivals, what people called awakenings, and the outfall of those and the conversations that have come. And they have shaped the way that we think about a lot of things, probably in ways we wouldn't even think about. So my, my hope is eventually to get us to that place where we're kind of dealing more with those things. But again, to begin some history, and that is why I did not give you a fill-in-the-blank outline, because <clears throat> I think you could probably find everything that I'm going to say this morning in any textbook <clears throat> eventually. So 
So with that, let me, let me turn away from beards and pants and, and talk about the arrival of Christianity to America, or what was once called the New World. So, of course, the Age of Exploration, which includes Christopher Columbus, about 1450 to 1600 are the dates, um, <clears throat> contributed to many European powers um, exploring and colonizing parts of the New World. The three big ones, but certainly not the only ones, but the three big ones are going to be Spain and France and England. Holland is going to get involved. <clears throat> Sweden is going to get involved. But Spain, France, and England are going to be the big players, the major players in the exploration and the development of the new world and England is going to have the most influence upon the United States. Um, and England, by the time colonists begin to come to the New World, England is thoroughly, distinctly, and officially Protestant and not Roman Catholic. And again, folks, we live in a world in which you and I know we're not Catholics. But you and I also know that the average Protestant doesn't lay in his bed at night wondering if he should kill the Catholic before the Catholic kills him. But there was a period of time in which it was almost that dangerous. England actually became Protestant kind of accidentally from a human standpoint. Now, you know, I, I mean, we would, I would argue and support the idea of the sovereign activity of God in moving all of these directions, but that's not how it looked to those that were involved. <clears throat> the man who had a significant impact upon England becoming a Protestant country was none other than Henry VIII. His dad was, no surprise, Henry VII, <clears throat> who won an English civil war <clears throat> known as the War of the Roses, which you have probably heard of, not the movie. Um, <clears throat> nobody laughed. <clears throat> you've, not, you've not heard of the movie War of the Roses. Good, that's good. That's good. <clears throat> just, just a goofy divorce movie from years ago. Not the, not the divorce is goofy, but it was, just, it was a movie that, never mind. <laughs> now you laugh. <clears throat> And now you're wishing he'd go back to Central City. <clears throat> but you've heard no doubt of the Wars of the Roses, and Henry VII won the War of Roses, which was really kind of an English civil war um, <clears throat> between two prominent families. And after Henry won the war in the most critical battle, not that you care, it's called the Battle of Bosworth Field, 1485, <clears throat> Henry tried to solidify his victory by marrying the daughter of the opposing king. Kind of like if at the end of the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had married one of his sons to one of Jefferson Davis's daughters. War's over, let's be friends, my son will marry your daughter, we'll unite the nation in one family. That was what Henry VII did. Henry VII and this woman had seven children, and the oldest of those was a boy by the name of Arthur. 
And for political reasons, or actually more military reasons than political reasons, Henry VII arranged, when he was very young, the marriage of his son Arthur to the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And Ferdinand and Isabella were the people who funded Christopher Columbus's trip. Arthur was 11. Catherine was three. No, um, she, was, um, she was about the same age, I'm sorry. When, when they were betrothed, when they were legally committed to each other. And the reason for this was that England was in a hostile relationship both with its neighbor to its north, Scotland, and with the neighbor to its south, France. And Scotland and France had made alliances because they mutually disliked England. And so Henry was looking for an ally to help him in case he needed to fight off both, both Scotland and France. Like, if we were concerned about an invasion because of an alliance between Canada and Mexico. Arthur died at the age of 16, about six months after he married Catherine. And so at the age of 16, Catherine finds herself a widow. She is a Spanish girl, raised in Spain, living in England, and her husband is a widow. Henry VII then negotiates a new deal with Spain that he would just hang on to Catherine and keep her in England until his second son was old enough to marry. And that was Henry VIII. <clears throat> Now again, this is one of those things <clears throat> that we might not think anything about or we might think how terrible to treat your children like coins <clears throat> or baseball cards to be traded. But the real issue was this. The Roman Catholic Church had a rather complicated and convoluted set of laws about what is known as consanguinity. Marriage between relatives, consanguinity, the mixing of blood, the bloods being together. And so the question was, could <clears throat> Catherine be married to brothers? Could they be married? Could she be married to brothers? Could she be married to brothers without <clears throat> a special dispensation from the church? Catherine promised that the marriage to Arthur had never been consummated, that she had never had sex with him. And so therefore there was no violation of the consanguinity laws. Now again, <clears throat> just imagine what it's like to be a 16-year-old widow who has to appear before magistrates and officials and talk about the most intimate details of your life and feel those kind of questions, and yet Catherine did. The church provided the necessary dispensation, <clears throat> and in 1509, Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon, wife number one. They are married about 20 years. They are both devout and dedicated Catholics, and in fact, Henry VIII wrote extensively against Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, and because of his writings, earned the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. Henry VIII was a Catholic. Lived a Catholic, and in reality, folks, died a Catholic. 
Catherine had eight children by Henry, but the only one to survive was a daughter, Mary. Henry really wanted a son, and by this time Henry had begun to fall in love with wife number two, the infamous Anne Boleyn. So Henry wanted a divorce. And Henry's argument was this, that God was punishing him by denying him a son because he had married his brother's wife. Now, you're probably somewhere in the back of your mind thinking, doesn't the Old Testament address what we call Leverite marriage, the marriage between the marriage of a wife to her brother? Yes. And yet the church had these rules they had and I, I'm not at all familiar with the complexity of this they had they had the church had established nine different types of relationships or degrees of relationships that they addressed they eventually reduced that to about four making it possible to marry a cousin without any special dispensation from the church that freed up a lot of interfamily marriage in the empires but We're not really talking about that. So this creates, again, this whole drama and this controversy. Henry is really interested in Anne Boleyn. He has lost interest in Catherine of Aragon. He doesn't have a male heir. The clock is ticking. And his argument is, whether he believes it or not, his argument is, through all of his counselors, is that God is displeased with this marriage and the church needs to sign off on the annulment. The family in Spain is not at all interested in allowing this divorce to go through. And Spain is a very powerful empire, very much in line with the Catholic Church. And the church keeps dragging its feet and dragging its feet. And Henry is a man with not a lot of patience. And so finally, Henry persuades British Parliament to pass what is known as the Act of Supremacy and declares himself to be the head of his own church. And in that signing of a document, England is no longer Catholic. It is Protestant. The king is the head of the church. He still is. King Charles III is the nominal head of the Anglican church. Parliament was willing to do this because many people in England had been positively impacted by the Protestant Reformation. There were leading men in England who were straining to see Protestantism come to England. And this to them was an answer to prayer of the highest magnitude that they would now be a Protestant nation. This signing of the Act of Supremacy in 1534 constitutes the beginning of what is known as the English Reformation. 17 years after the Protestant Reformation begins with Martin Luther, there is the English Reformation. And England then officially becomes legally Protestant and constitutes itself as the Church of England. It is Roman Catholic for all intents and purposes, except that Henry no longer answers to the Pope. The divorce 
is granted, the marriage to Anne Boleyn is legitimized. But Anne Boleyn doesn't provide him a male heir. He has one surviving legitimate child, Mary, by Catherine, and now he has Elizabeth by Anne Boleyn. And of course, you know that Henry had eight wives, and the old poem is, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, and Anne Boleyn was one of those that were beheaded. Officially, she was accused of adultery. There are many questions about whether or not she was guilty of adultery. Mostly, she was guilty of two things. Number one, not conceiving a son, and number two, being too much of a Protestant for Henry VIII. Henry then went on to wife number three, a woman by the name of Jane Seymour, who he married in 1536, who did have a son that was named Edward and would become King Edward VI. When Henry VIII died in 1547, Edward was 10 years old. So he was 10 years old when he became the king. He lived six more years, and he died when he was 16. Since he was a minor <clears throat> during the entirety of his reign, his leadership was handed over to what was known as a regency, a group of leading men who made decisions on his behalf. He counseled with them, they counseled with him, but he had no legal authority in the nation of England until he turned 18 in his own right. But Edward, who was in very poor health all of his life, was very smart and very studious, and he himself was a dedicated and devoted Protestant. And he was insistent that Protestantism be advanced and protected in the nation of England. And it was actually under him that England, the Church of England developed a book that it uses to this day, the Book of Common Prayer, which is the book that kind of maps out their worship rituals. And again, this did not happen in any kind of neutrality because the Protestants and Edward VI's counselors were mostly Protestant men, didn't just want to advance Protestantism, they wanted to exclude Catholicism. And so there's a lot of division and a lot of tension in the country. So we've had two girls born. Mary the oldest and Elizabeth, and then we have finally a son, Edward, and Edward dies at the age of 16, and England is once again without a monarch. And so the monarch becomes Mary, the oldest daughter of Henry VIII. She was the queen between 1553 and 1558, and we know her as Bloody Mary because she was a lifelong Roman Catholic. She had been born in Spain, she had been taught Catholicism. Her husband was a Catholic. And she didn't, she was, I mean, you know, if you read about Mary, she was a little bit of a piece of work in her own right. But she didn't get out of bed every day saying, you know what I think I'd like to do today is kill people. She did get out of bed every day and say, here I am, the queen of a country that is driving to be Protestant, and that isn't right, it needs to be Catholic, and so I'm going to make it so. And so you're going to be Catholic or else, and for about 288 people, or else meant death. Mary reigned for only five years, and she died. 
And she was followed by her half-sister, Anne Boleyn's daughter, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth reigned from 1558 to 1603, 45 years. And Elizabeth was an incredibly brilliant woman, my opinion. Who had lived in this topsy-turvy world, folks. And if you go back and, and read any of the English history on this, Right? The, the ramifications for this at a personal level, when, 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 when Mary becomes the queen, Elizabeth virtually loses all of her standing. And, I mean, just like that, her world is turned upside down, and it just, it just all becomes very complicated. All of which to say, Elizabeth then, who is the queen of England but the king of politics and negotiation, Elizabeth is trying to figure out how to navigate this country that is greatly torn between being, between being Catholic and Protestant. And that brings us to what is known as the Elizabethan Settlement or the Elizabethan Protestant Settlement. Elizabeth intended or attempted to pass some laws that would keep England on the track of being Protestant without exterminating all who are Catholic. And privately, Elizabeth's practice was, I don't really care what religion you are privately as long as you're not upsetting the British apple cart in doing it. So if you want to be a Catholic at home, be a Catholic at home. If you want to be a Catholic that overthrows the Protestant monarchy, I'm going to send the soldiers after you. Nobody was happy under the Elizabethan settlement. The Protestants didn't think that she went far enough, and neither did the Catholics. Nobody was particularly happy. And it is during this time, when all of this is going on, that we start to see the emergence of a group of people that we would be really familiar with, <clears throat> people known to us as Puritans. And one of the things we're going to have to do over the next few weeks, folks, is make sure that we recognize that there is a real difference historically between a Puritan and a pilgrim. We, you know, we, and, and I do the same thing, so I'm not being critical. We just, we just tend to view them all as the early colonists. But they are two different groups of people. Puritans are not pilgrims, and pilgrims are not Puritans. Puritans, to be a true Puritan, you had to still be a part of the Church of England. And what you wanted to do as a Puritan was rid the Church of England of anything that looked like Roman Catholicism. You wanted to get rid of that. And again, folks, it's really a little bit hard for us to think about how seriously and how much detail went into this. I am, as I pretty much do all the time, wearing my wedding band. Wedding bands were Roman Catholic in nature. Puritans would not wear them. They are popish. What about ministers wearing collars? What about where we're going to place the pulpit. And I've talked about this a number of times. If, we were, if you went into a Roman Catholic church, in the center of the platform is the altar, 
and somewhere off on one of the sides is the pulpit. The Puritans would faint over something like that. That's popish. And the Puritans wanted to eliminate Roman Catholicism and anything that looked like Roman Catholicism from the Church of England. Elizabeth dies in 1603. She never married. Wooed a lot of men for political reasons, but never married any of them. And so once again, we have a succession problem. Who's going to be the monarch? And the crown passes to her first cousin, James. James is from Scotland. Enemy territory. It would, it would literally be, folks, like Vladimir Putin becoming the president of the United States. How can a guy be the how can a guy lead Russia and the United States at the same time? We don't like each other. He is actually James VI of England, but he becomes James I to us. That is how we know him historically. So James is actually the king of two different countries. It isn't, folks, until 1707 that the crowns are united and we have the United Kingdom. James is just a guy who's in charge of two different countries. And they are radically different countries. Scotland is small and poor and England is big and rich. And so James leaves Scotland and comes to England. Scotland has its own church, the Church of Scotland, which is primarily a Presbyterian church and interestingly enough is a country that is under the leadership mostly of pastors, Presbyterian pastors. They run the country. James doesn't like that. He much prefers the English model in which the church is run by bishops. The Church of England, folks, is technically run by the nobility. The king is the head, and every bishop in the Church of England in this part of time in the world, I can't speak for today, was a, was a titled person, was a person who was a noble person. They were lords. And James really liked that. He liked the idea of having a church run by his peers. And so he was very much into that. James becomes the king, of course, in 1603. And the Protestants are thrilled at the prospect of getting, well, maybe not thrilled, they're somewhat optimistic at the opportunity of getting a Protestant king. And they meet with him in 1604 with a a variety of petitions of things they would like to do to see Protestantism strengthened in the nation of England. And James dismisses all of them. He throws them one bone. You're probably holding it in your lap this morning. The only accommodation that James made to any of the Protestant desires was that they could draft a new edition of the Bible, provided that they do it with his permission, with his approval. And so, again, without getting into all of this, folks, but that's another one of those things. Our King James Bible, and I love our King James Bible, but it was translated by men who were Englishmen 
who had a distinct perspective in mind of things and who translated the Bible in a way that lent itself to support their perspective. That's just what's going to happen. So anyway, I have the King James Bible of 1611. James actually appoints a new archbishop to the Church of England who immediately undertakes the task of ridding the Church of England of all Puritans. They got to go. So rather than a favorable climate for Protestantism, James creates an unfavorable climate for Protestantism, for sincere practice of Protestantism. In 1607, in a purely commercial endeavor, James signs off on the Jamestown colony of Virginia, which those of you that have been through the Abeka curriculum know from the day you go into first grade is the first permanent English settlement in the New World. There had been another attempt, but as far as we know, everybody died for whatever reason, Roanoke. And 1607, Jamestown, Virginia, you can visit it. You can go to Colonial Williamsburg. It's a great place to go on vacation. You can go out and see Jamestown, the, first, the remnants of the first permanent settlement. It is entirely commercial in nature. It is not in any way a religious venture. Not that the people weren't religious, but they weren't on a religious mission. They went off to make money for the crown. 1607. Also under James's reign in 1620, the Mayflower Pilgrims come to Massachusetts. Massachusetts is one of the Indian tribes in the area, and it is the name that will become the name of the colony and the state. I mentioned a few minutes ago that we needed to make the distinction between the Puritans and the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims who come to the New World in 1620 do not come from England, although they are Englishmen. They come from Holland, where they had been living, because they were not Puritans, they were separatists. They didn't want to be Church of England. They were distinctly not Catholic, and they were not Church of England. They were separate. They were a severely persecuted minority, and they left England and went to Holland because Holland was much more religiously tolerant, but at times a little too tolerant of too much immorality, and besides which they were foreigners. They didn't speak the language, they didn't really fit in, and so they began to pray, and they sought an opportunity, and the opportunity came for them to get on the Mayflower and to come to the New World, and they came to Massachusetts in 1620. They are technically folks, criminals. It is against the law to not be an Anglican under English dominion. They're technically criminals. They know it. Everybody knows it. They come to the New World. They sign the Mayflower Compact. There's a whole story to that. They're blown a little bit off course. There's a whole discussion about what that means and why they don't actually relocate to Virginia. We don't care about that. They land Plymouth Rock, 1620, separatists. They establish their territory will primarily be that odd-shaped part of southeastern Massachusetts, if you look at a map that juts out into 
the Atlantic Ocean. James dies in 1625. I'm going to wrap this up quickly. James dies in 1625, and his son Charles I becomes king. And under Charles, England experiences yet another civil war. It actually gets involved in two wars under Charles. It gets involved in a war in Scotland in 1638 known as the Bishop's War over Charles' attempts to take the Church of England form of government and impose it upon the Scots, another thing that doesn't make them any longer friends. I told you in 2019, 2019, four years ago, five years ago, my wife and I spent a month in the UK talking to a guy in Scotland up there, one of our bus drivers. Brexit was the big story. I asked him what they were going to do, what Scotland was going to do if there was Brexit, and he looked at me and said, we utterly despise the English. Why do you utterly despise the English? Well, let's go back to 1638 and talk about the Bishops' War. Sixteen forty-one, civil war breaks out. Sixteen forty-nine, Charles is beheaded, and that leads to something we're not really going to get into. But eleven years of Oliver Cromwell attempting to establish a theocracy in England. We will, however, talk about Christian nationalism because we're dealing with the roots of it. American colonists then have to take sides because they are all Englishmen. They're more in tune with England than they are with other colonies. Most people in Virginia support the crown and most people in Massachusetts do not because they want to be more Protestant or they don't want to be church in England at all. And between 1620 and 1640, England experiences what is known as the Great Protestant Migration, in which about 80,000 people leave England for religious reasons. About a quarter of them come to America. Now, England had that time a population of about 4 million. It's a relatively small percentage, but it's the equivalent, folks, of about 7 million Americans leaving the United States simply for religious reasons. We no longer like the religious climate in America. We went out, seven million of us, we go. We want to, we want to practice our religion freely. So by the mid-1600s, the, the American colonies are beginning to fill with people. 1650, the estimated population of the entire New England, I mean the entire colonial America, not, not including the Native Americans, is about 50,000 Englishmen. By the time of 1776, it's about two and a half million Americans, maybe more. So the population grows extensively. And these people are all Protestant in one form or another, and we'll talk a little bit about the way Protestantism played out in the colonies. Next week, I better stop. So that's, that's this morning. Thank you very much.